The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone. So, <laughs> welcome back, last day of this retreat. Um, sometimes uh, endings are good sometimes, sometimes not so good, but uh, so... Uh, it's one of the nice things about the Dhamma, it's all about endings of things, uh, coming to the end. So, um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so maybe this is good, uh, yeah, retreat coming to an end. Sometimes people say, oh no, we want to go on longer, but sometimes endings are okay, so don't, uh, don't despair, as they say. <laughs> so we're going to have a look at the uh, Satipatthana Sutta today, and uh, gave quite a bit of introduction about this yesterday already. And we're now going to continue. It's going to be a bit of a rushed going through because uh, there's only two sessions left. But uh, that's okay. You have to see things from different angles. Sometimes rushed, sometimes slow, sometimes super fast, sometimes middle way. Uh, usually you lose the middle way. Usually it's kind of fast or slow. And middle way is really hard to find. But uh, we'll see what happens as we go through this. Uh, and as so often, the suttas have, are very structured, yeah? and you find in the Satipatthana Sutta, you find this in other suttas, that it kind of starts off with an introduction, and then you have the body of the text, and then you have the summary or the kind of conclusion at the end. And in many ways, the kind of the framing material, the introduction and the ending are sometimes some of the most interesting information in there. And uh, it really depends on how you look at it. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, and uh, the reason for that is because uh, in the introduction, uh, it starts off by telling you the context in which the practice is to be done. Uh, yeah, It gives you the background information. It tells you when you should do this practice, uh, how you should uh, approach it, what are the necessary causes and conditions that you need to set up before the practice can be done. Uh, and this is incredibly useful, because if you come to meditation and you're not ready, your mind isn't clear or whatever, then it's not going to work. So this contextual information about what you need to do to even start is actually very, very useful. And this is what this first little section is about before we actually get into the sutta proper, if you like. It's all part of the sutta proper before we get into the specific things that we're supposed to do as meditators. So let's have a quick look at this. So, uh, so I have heard at one time uh, the Buddha was staying in the land of the Kurus uh, near the Kuru town named Kamasadama. There the Buddha addressed the mendicants, monastics, monastics, venerable sir, they replied the Buddha said this. Uh, so this is in the land of the which is kind of interesting in its own right, but uh, let's not get too much too sidetracked by these minor things. Uh, mendicants, the four kinds of mindfulness meditation are the path to convergence. They are in order to purify sentient beings, to get past sorrow and crying, to make an end of pain and sadness, to end the cycle of suffering, and to realize extinguishment. 
So that's kind of interesting. So this means that the Satipatthana practice is to take you all the way to the end of the path. Yeah. And that's already interesting because we have just seen before that Satipatthana is only the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is not the end of the path. So if you haven't even got to the end of the path, how can you get the final result, which is Nibbana? How is that possible? And this is kind of one of the slight conundrums. And and the answer basically is that um, Satipatthana can be seen in like a narrow context and a broad context. The narrow context, Satipatthana is just the meditation that leads to Samadhi. That's the usual meaning of Satipatthana in the suttas. Uh, you practice Satipatthana to get to Samadhi. You see this everywhere. Yeah, you have in the Noble Eightfold Path, Samasati leading to Samasamadhi. It's always a causal connection there. You see this, we saw yesterday, the Satta Sambhojanga, Seven Factors of Awakening, starts off with Samma, the Sati Sambhojanga, ends up with Samadhi Sambhojanga, Upeka Sambhojanga. You see this in the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual powers, Panchabala, Panchindriya. You have the uh, Sila, uh, sorry, the Sat Indriya before the Samadhi Indriya, Satibala before the uh, Samadhi Bala. So there's always this same connection. This is something you see throughout the suttas. Uh, but sometimes Satipatthana is said to take you all the way to awakening. And what you find in those contexts is usually that Samadhi is implied. Uh, samadhi is kind of taken within Satipatthana. So it doesn't mean that you can avoid Samadhi, it just means that it is kind of included within Satipatthana so that you also contemplate those Samadhi states and you understand how to achieve them. This is why it is said to take you all the way to the end of the path. But you will notice one little curiosity here, and this is a kind of Bhantasujato curiosity, the path to convergence. Yeah. <laughs> What is that all about? Path to convergence? What do you mean? Path? Does it mean path to harmony? Is that what it means? We all become very harmonious. We kind of converge in, in views and we work. Is that what it means? What does this mean? The Pali word is ekayano mago. Yeah, quite a famous phrase uh, in Satipatthana uh, discussions and groups. So ekayano, what does this mean? And it can mean a number of different things. Uh, it can mean the path going to one destination and all of these kind of things. But uh, he argues with quite good arguments uh, and uh, woe to anyone who tries to argue against him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, but he's, quite, he is, uh, he's clever, right? So he can, we can guarantee that he's going to come up with some good arguments. So ekayana maigo, eka is used very often in the suttas to mean samadhi, yeah? For example, you have ekatta, which means oneness, is used all the way. It means oneness in the suttas. Ekodibhuta, we mentioned the other day, is uh, become one, quite literally. You have ekagata citta, one-pointed mind, or, or the mind is unified, and all of these things. So eka has a very close relationship with samadhi in the suttas, but also in pre Buddhist literature as well, like the Upanishads and the Brahmanical literature. So there is a, um, I think, a fairly good argument. So, uh, so I think it's kind of interesting, yeah, because it it kind of strengthens this idea that um, the purpose of Satipatthana, the the preliminary purpose or the primary purpose, uh, is to lead to samadhi, and the secondary purpose then take you all the way to nibbana, which here is translated as extinguishment which I kind of like. 
I remember some while ago I was corresponding with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi about how to Nibbana, whether it should be translated or not, and if it should be translated exactly how. And it's very common to in the uh, in translation to leave certain words untranslated. Yeah, we discussed this briefly the other day. And Nibbana is one of those words. Uh, don't translate it because it's very hard to understand what Nibbana is. Leave it, just leave it in there. But if you leave it in there without translating it, you have even less clue about what it means. Yeah, you're really utterly at the mercy of your own defilements to interpret it. Uh, because your defilements are going to interpret it the way you want to understand Nibbana, not the, what actually the Buddha means by it. So it's not, it's not a good idea to leave words untranslated because people will distort the meaning. You will read whatever you want into a word like Nibbana. So give it some meaning here. Yeah. yeah, give it, what approximately does it mean? Uh, and uh, I remember the one of the nice meanings of um, Nibbana, or one of the meanings that was translations that was used was extinction. <laughs> the path to extinction. <laughs> and uh, I think I, I was Mampikibodi told me this is too, this word is just too too strong and too kind of you know it has too many negative connotation. Extinction is something bad when we talk about extinction of species. Uh, so he said, let's just go for extinguishment instead. So that has kind of become the, the word now, instead of extinction. Extinguishment. That's kind of nice, yeah? Extinguish the flame. Bing, flame gone. That's kind of a good one. So uh, anyway, so that's why we have extinguishment there. In case you're wondering about that. And if you're not wondering about it, then just uh, disregard it. <laughs> Okay, so what are these fours? So these are the four Satipatthanas in brief. It's when a mendicant meditates by observing an aspect of the body, keen, aware and mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. They meditate observing an aspect of feelings, keen, aware and mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. They observe they meditate observing an aspect of the mind, keen, aware, and mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. They meditate observing an aspect of principles, keen, aware, mindful, rid of desire and aversion for the world. So, um, yeah, you meditate. Viharati means literally to, to dwell or to be or to hang out or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes you go on the internet, you see these really modern translations of the suttas, uh, kind of cool translations. Uh, they use vocabulary. I don't even dare to say the vocabulary they use sometimes because I might be thrown out of the BSV and never be invited back again. I, actually, maybe maybe that's a good idea. No, no, I'm just joking. So some really kind of, the language they use is kind of really over the top. Uh, I'm not going to say the language they use because uh, you probably wouldn't be all that impressed, but it's kind of a, got this kind of modern lingo to it, yeah? Hang out is probably the kind of the, the least kind of slangy term they would use. Anyway, so you, you meditate or you dwell or you, 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 you know, this is what you do, observing an aspect of the body. Now this is a very interesting little phrase there, observing an aspect of the body. The uh, Pali is a kaye kayanupasi here. Yeah, which many of you will have heard, probably, especially if you chant the Satipatthana Sutta. And what does exactly this mean? It's a very kind of important point. And traditionally, this is translated into almost like a slightly mystical way, 
Kaya Kaya Nupasi, he dwells contemplating a body in the body, or the body as a body, or the uh, something like that, body as a body. What does that mean? You what else are you going to contemplate it as? It's kind of, so it's, it's a bit mystical when you see that. Uh, but um, I think the idea here is that you're contemplating some a kind of a large phenomenon like the body, but you are taking out a small part of that. Uh, yeah, a body. Body here means a group of phenomena. Uh, like the breath, for example, is a group of phenomena within the larger body. Uh, so it's a body in the body uh, is actually, to me, the correct translation. That's quite literally what it means. Kaya, kaya, nupasi. So an aspect of the body, this is how I have always translated it, and I was very pleased to see Bhante Sujato doing the same, probably because he learned it from me, right? That's what... <laughs> I don't think he would... Yeah, anyway, so this is basically what it is about. An aspect of the body gets very close to the meaning, the 31 parts, the four elements, the breath, all of these are aspects of the body, one way or another. So this is kind of a nice translation, very understandable, right? There's no kind of mystery there. There's, not, there's no body as the body, and this kind of mysterious things. It's kind of direct and easy. Then you have this very important word, observe, anupassi, kaya kaya anupassi, anupassana is the kind of usual, usual way this word is encountered in the suttas. What does that mean? Uh, and uh, quite literally, pasati or pasana is to see, and anu means something along with. Yeah, you're seeing along with something. Uh, so from that point of view, observing is about right. You're seeing things, uh, you're kind of going along with the phenomenon and seeing it as it is. Uh, that's kind of the idea of along with. Uh, so um, in this sense, yeah, observing is kind of nice. Uh, going along with it. Uh, but uh, there is a problem with that uh, idea of observing. I'm not sure if I really fully... I think, the, the, I mean, you can translate this in many ways, and every way you translate is going to have drawbacks and, and strengths, yeah? So you can't really... You can't really con often we criticize the translator, but all we really mean is that there is some additional way of rendering this. There is no perfect word in translation. There's just different choices. And sometimes you have to choose one thing, sometimes you choose something else. And this is why it can be handy to read different translations, to see different angles on these things. But observing gives this idea that everything in Satipatthana is about just seeing things. And when you see things through direct observation, that is how insight arises. But actually, that's not how it works. It can work like that, but often it does not. And for, to give you an example, we later on going to have a quick look at the 31 parts of the body. And in there, it's quite clear that you are using your imagination. Yeah? You don't have to have a physical body in front of you and kind of cut it up to see, okay, liver, lungs, you know. If you needed that every time we're going to do this uh, contemplation, it would be, <laughs> would be very hard. Yeah? Or even if you just have a chart, it would be too difficult. So it's an act of imagination. You know, okay, in here... Lungs, right heart, liver, intestines, brain. I hope there's some brain in here. It's <laughs> checking out. So skull, bones, you can feel all of these things, right? So it's an act of imagination to know that these things are within you. And that's kind of... So imagination is a part of this. And, that, and imagination is not observing. It is more like contemplation. That's what imagination is. So in that sense, I think contemplation is... a in some contexts, a better translation than observing. Yeah. 
But you can see the problem. Once you say contemplation, it doesn't sound like observing anymore. Observing is seen directly, but contemplation doesn't really imply observing directly. So either choice is bad. There is no perfect choice in translation. Maybe you should have observing slash contemplating. That would be the best way of translating it. You're not supposed to have slashes in translation, so I'm not sure if that works either. But then there is another very important aspect of anupassana and seeing it. And that is that a lot is done retrospectively. It is not done observing directly, but when you come out of the meditation, you think back on what happened. That is when insight can arise. I've been talking about this already, the idea of pain, for example. You don't need to observe the pain. You come out of the meditation, all you experience is bliss. Now you understand pain, because pain is absent. Through its absence, you understand it. That is a retrospective understanding, not a direct, immediate observation. And this, you may think that I'm talking, maybe I don't know what you think about what I'm saying. Maybe you're kind of a bit blank about it, because it, you have to have kind of thought about this or read about these things to understand the implications of these things. And for many of you, it may not actually mean all that much. But this is actually very significant. And the reason why this is significant, because it's very common in meditation circles to say, insight only happens through directly observing. That's why you have to observe pain. yeah, Because only when you look at the pain and you observe it, can you have insight. But the answer is no. That's not really how it works. Lots of suttas that show you that after you come out of meditation, you reflect back on what happened. And then you understand what is going on. Yeah, There was no pain there. Okay, cheapest. That must mean pain is pain, painful. Pain is dukkha. Surprise, surprise. And you understand it in a deeper way because now you have gone beyond that. You have all you have happiness. You fully understand how problematic it is. And then you understand all the three characteristics in this way. So, you, so anupassana is all of these things. It is direct observation. It is using imagination. And it is thinking back and looking at what happened. All of these things are part of anupassana. It is not just observing. It is contemplating. It is an imaginative exercise. Then we start to understand the breadth of this thing. Yeah, it's a broad kind of category of things. And we get a better approach to this. So sometimes this is one of the problems in Buddhism, is that um, over time we get certain schools of, of thought, yeah, like the Ajahn Brahm school maybe, uh, yeah, and so, but every school you have uh, has some shortcomings, uh, yeah, you go to any any kind of interpretation has shortcomings. So we, yesterday I mentioned the Goenka tradition, I said, well, maybe there's some shortcomings, so you shouldn't be surprised at that. This is not to pick on Goenka or anyone, really. It's just to point out that wherever you go, there's going to be shortcomings. And because of that, it is very useful to contemplate some of these terms and actually understand what, what might be the shortcomings in this case, not to be too blind and just accept things on the on face value. And then when you do that, you criticize it, you come up with something else, next generation will say, well, your system also has shortcomings, yeah, and they will kind of point out the shortcomings. And it's always going to be like that. There's always evolution in this, this way. There's never any final understanding. But we're all kind of keeping our awareness about things and that's kind of how we keep this path alive and keep it relevant and keep it real so all right so that's observing an aspect of the body 
Then we have these very interesting words, keen, aware, and mindful. What are these words? These words are atapi, sampajano, satima. Atapi, sampajano, satima. And uh, so what does this mean? Keen. Keen is a word which is very closely related, this atapi, very closely related to padana. Padana is the samapadana, yeah, right effort. It's also related to energy, virya. These words are all kind of have a similar position on the path. Uh, virya is what you have in samadhi. Yeah, when the mind becomes powerful and strong, you feel have the natural energy of the mind. You don't have to exert yourself with willpower because the energy is there. That's what happens in samadhi. In right effort, you have padana, which means that you have to exert yourself a little bit with right effort because you're, you know, you're still kind of early stages in the path. So this is samasati. It is between padana and virya. So atapi is like this term that kind of uh, bridges that gap, if if you like. Yeah. So it is a little bit of effort, but as you develop your meditation, it moves into virya, the natural energy of the mind. So atapi kind of has that. A little bit of both, yeah. A little bit of uh, initially when you start meditating, there's a little bit of will there to guide your mind a little bit, uh, and then that is the padana, the right effort. And then as the meditation becomes stronger, you let go more and more and more until all that is left is the virya of the mind, uh, and that then enables the meditation to happen. Uh, usually, when atapi, I think, is only defined one place in the suttas and then it's defined in the same way as padana at that particular case. But that's roughly, so keen is kind of nice, yeah, because keen is, uh, uh, when you have virya, then the mind is really keen, the mind is really involved with what is going on. Uh, so the mind is kind of interested, uh, but keen may also imply maybe a little bit of uh, effort on your behalf at the same time. So keen is quite a nice translation. You're, being, you're getting inspired now. You're getting really interested in what is going on. The mind is energized. Uh, you want to do this. Uh, yeah, the effort gradually falling by the wayside, becoming more and more natural, the whole process. Uh, the deeper you go in the Satipatthana, the more it's just pure virya, pure energy of the mind. Uh, and there's less and less of the agency behind it. Uh, the very early stages, it's the opposite. So that's atapi. And then you have the idea of um, sampajano. Now, now this is, uh, sampajano is sampajanya. And I have been saying all the time that the, the, uh, the, ex, the sampajanya paragraph does not really belong to Satipatthana. But here it is, lo and behold. So am I just contradicting myself or what is going on? And uh, the fact that it is here in the beginning here, means that it doesn't really belong in the sutta. It's like you have it twice almost, right? So it, you have it here in the beginning, so this is still consistent with what I said before, that the Sampajano paragraph doesn't belong inside the sutta. So here, Sampajano, here, is very similar to, to Sampajanya in the broader sense, but here now it is focused on meditation itself. Yeah, we don't in other words, it's not about going forward and going back and eating. And it's not about that at all. It's about how you relate to your meditation practice. This is what Sampajana is here. So Sampajanya has different meaning in different contexts. Before meditation, it means being aware of what you're doing. In meditation, it's being aware of the meditation practice. So it means slightly different things depending on the context. But the basic idea is the same. The basic idea is that you know whether what you're doing is appropriate. Is it suitable? 
Is it leading to peace? Yeah? Is it doing what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah? That is kind of the idea behind Sampajana. So if you are sitting there, you're meditating, and suddenly you're fantasizing about, uh, uh, I don't know, what you, whatever that might be, food or going or ending this, no, oh, I'm really fed up with these eight precepts now, you know, this evening, yay, gonna have a nice dinner this evening. I don't know if that's what you think. Yeah. I always know that as as a monk, you have been doing this for so long time. You don't even the idea of dinner doesn't really occur in the evening. I never think about it. And um, but as a lay person, it's very different. Yeah, you come here for eight days, and actually, so you are t- making a big change in your life. That is quite hard. So I always feel sorry for the lay people. Like you keep the eight precepts. I feel jeepers, you are heroic doing this. Yeah, for us, okay, it's not no big deal. You're so used to it, but for you guys, it's actually quite a big sacrifice. Yeah, <laughs> so well done, everyone. Marvelous, you are. The Buddha said it's very useful to keep the eight precepts, so you are doing something very, very good. So um, you are aware of what you're doing in your meditation. Is it serving the purpose? Are you fantasizing about your dinner tonight, or are you not? And hopefully you're not, yeah? And uh, then you are aware if that fantasy is taking hold in the mind. You know, cheapest, I'm, this is not the purpose. Uh, this is not suitable. This is not going to get me anywhere. So then you go back to the meditation object or you remember the disadvantage of contemplating food or whatever else it is. Uh, and then you move away from that. You have clear awareness. You're watching the breath. Are you watching the breath in a suitable way? Or are you clinging to the breath? Are you using too much willpower? Uh, clear awareness about that. Uh, you know whether what you're doing is suitable, uh, whether it will lead to the goal that you're trying to lead to. This is Sampajana, how it is defined in the commentary. The commentary has a fourfold scheme on, depend- on describing Sampajana. The most two important of that, two important aspects of that fourfold scheme is purpose and suitability. Are you fulfilling the purpose? Is it suitable what you're doing? The last two are uh, one of them is a bit dodgy, in my opinion, but one of them is too profound. That's why I don't usually talk about it. One of them is the idea that you always stay with a meditation object, uh, which I think is not really, there's no evidence for that in the suttas. And the last one is uh, asamoha, which means non-delusion, which means that you are aware of the non-self nature of what you do. But that's much more profound. Uh, the two basic things are purpose and suitability. That's what everyone really needs to be aware of. Also in your meditation. Huh? And then you have mindful, yeah, which is kind of very interesting. Satima means having mindfulness. So what that means is that when you come to Satipatthana, you are already mindful. Yeah, you bring, you establish the mindfulness through the other factors of the path. And then when you come here, you bring the mindfulness to the Satipatthana, you use that mindfulness to enable meditation to take place take place. Yeah, you're aware of the breath. Everything calms down. So you bring mindfulness with you. And this is why I'm saying foundations of mindfulness is not a good translation, because foundation of mindfulness implies that you are producing mindfulness through Satipatthana, when in fact what you do is you bring mindfulness with you and you apply it to the object. That's why I call it application of mindfulness, or focuses of mindfulness or something like that, which to me is much more appropriate. So you bring mindfulness with you, and then you apply it, and then the meditation happens. And this is why all the things we have been talking about so far, all the preparations on the path are so important, because they are what give rise to mindfulness. So that's why in the Anapanasati Sutta it says, 
before you start the man anapanasate you satting parimukkang upatapetva you establish mindfulness in the here and now yeah this is what it starts at the very beginning here it is called using slightly different vocabulary here it says satima but the meaning is exactly the same yeah, yeah you bring mindfulness with you to the meditation yeah. And then you have the last one is rid of desire and aversion for the world. Yeah, loke abhidja domanasa, vinaya loke abhidja domanasa, and um, so this is what we do in right effort. In within right effort, you uh, abhidja domanasang. Uh, same, this, exactly the same words. Yeah, there you. You uh, restrain them; so they don't arise. You restrain the faculties so that abhijja and domanasa don't arise, and because you restrain it there, when you come to satipatthana, they are gone. That's why here it says rid, whereas there it says you restrain it. You can see the sequence; exactly the same words. So you can see that this one thing leading to the next one. What is the world? The world is the world of the five senses. This is how it is often used in the suttas. So this means desire and aversion in that world of the five senses. That's what you are rid of or mostly rid of yeah not entirely but there is a largely rid of that at least the the kind of the expression of these things in your mind etc so that's it yeah mendicant meditates observing an aspect of the body keen aware and mindful rid of desire and aversion for the world there's quite a lot there that says something about how we should approach this meditation, whether you are ready for it or not. Yeah, you have some idea. If you think about this, then you know whether you're ready for meditation or not. Is your mind relatively peaceful? No desire and aversion. Do you have established mindfulness? Are you uh, kind of reasonably keen? Yeah, <laughs> on the meditation, etc., etc. And then you know whether you're on the right track, and then you can observe an aspect of the body. As a consequence of that, we'll see in a second what this aspect of the body is. But the two main aspects of the body, well, first, 31 parts, the other one is the breath. These are the two things we need to really worry about. Actually, don't worry about it, just do it. So um, that's the body. And then we have exactly the same formula for feelings. Yeah, feelings, feelings. Then you have the same for mind. What does mind mean? Basically, it means mind states, various kinds of mind states. And the last one here is Dhamma, principles. And um, this is an interesting question. What does Dhamma mean in this context? And it seems to mean two things. It means phenomena, phenomena in the mind, and it means natural principles, how these phenomena arise. Yeah, And that's why Bhandasarada uses the word principles, because the how things arise, what they are caused by, how they come into existence, is really about the laws of the mind. Yeah, If you uh, look at a person and you look for the beauty in that person, you get attracted to them. This is just the law of the mind. Yeah, Desire arises as a consequence of seeing something you think is beautiful. Food is the same. You are a bit hungry and the food looks beautiful. You get desire for the food. The whole realm of sensory desire is like that. It's very obvious. Same thing with ill will. So you understand the causality behind these things, which is very useful if we're going to achieve that restraint we were talking about before. That's the introductory paragraph. Yeah. So that's the introduction. So now let's have a look at the actual content of the various exercises. So we have the 
mindfulness of breathing. And uh, so how, let's just read through it maybe. Uh, and how does a mendicant meditate observing an aspect of the body? It's when a mendicant gone to a wilderness, uh, to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down cross-legged uh, with the body straight and focuses their mindfulness right there. Just mindful, they breathe in, mindful, they breathe out. So this is the standard opening of the Anapanasati Sutta, and it's a very interesting, again, this is like the introduction there, it's very interesting, this introduction. It says a lot about what Anapanasati is about. First of all, it's the idea of seclusion again, yeah, wilderness, emptiness. In other words, it's a profound kind of meditation. You sit down, you don't do this while walking around, certainly not when you're on arms around, certainly not when you're eating or talking. It's a, it's a real meditation practice. Yeah, then you have this idea of the body being straight, which clears up the awareness, and then you have the focusing the mindfulness right there. It's what I said before, Satting Parimukang Upatapetva. In other words, you establish mindfulness before you kind of do the meditation. Then comes the meditation. You breathe in, just mindful, this idea of just again, no willpower, no doing, you don't make it happen, you are just mindful. Satova, a little word, yeah, which can be, can be quite meaningful. Just mindful, they breathe in, mindful, they breathe out. So this is again, probably the most important part of the Anapanasati Sutta, that introduction reminds you of what you need to establish. And it really deserves a lot more discussion, but uh, now is the wrong time. When breathing in heavily, they know I am breathing in heavily, or long, long or heavy. When breathing out heavily, they know I'm breathing out heavily. When breathing in lightly, they know I'm breathing in lightly. When breathing out lightly, they know I'm breathing out lightly. When they practice breathing in, experiencing the whole body, sabbakaya patisangvedi, they practice breathing out, experiencing the whole body. They practice breathing in, stilling the body's motion. They practice breathing out, stilling the body's motion. Kaya sankarang patisambati. So um, here you have the gradual movement of the mind, what happens in meditation. And one of the interesting things about this is to show the progress of Satipatthana, what Satipatthana is supposed to do to you as you do the practice. And of course, what you find here is that the mind is becoming peaceful. Yeah, This is kind of the gradual movement of peace. Heavy breath to light breath, from light breath to expanding your awareness to seeing the whole body here, meaning body of breath. Yeah. Um, uh, that's how it, Kaya uh, is described in Anapanasati Sutta as the breath. Uh, and then practice instilling the body's motion. This is the Kaya Sankara, which is defined as the breath in the suttas. Uh, so it's the gradual stilling and calming down of things. Uh, so this gives you an idea of what should be happening in your meditation. Calming, calming, calming. Not just observing for observing's sake, but having a specific outcome, calming things down. Uh, and that calming, of course, is always joined with a sense of delight, yeah, because it's, it's delightful just to feel more peaceful. Even if there is no literal bliss arising in the mind, just the fact that things are calming down is marvelous. Yeah, if you notice what a restless mind feels like that makes you run around all of these things, and when you feel really peaceful, 
you will notice that the idea of being peaceful is far, it's a far superior state of mind. You feel much more in control, you feel much more at ease, you feel that it's just superior. So this is taking you in that direction. So um, like a deft carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice, when making a deep cut, they know I'm making a deep cut. When making a shallow cut, they know I'm making a shallow cut. And so they meditate observing an aspect of the body, internally, externally, both internally and externally. They meditate observing an aspect of the body as liable to originate, as liable to vanish, as liable to both originate and vanish. Where mindfulness is established that the body exists to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. They meditate independent, not grasping at anything in the world. That's how a, a mendicant meditates, observing an aspect of the body. So that uh, simile there of the shortcut and the long cut, it just means, yeah, you are aware of whether something is short or long. It, you don't have to know anything more about it. You don't um, make... Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just an awareness of what is happening, really. That's kind of the point, I think, of that simile. Yeah. But then you have this very interesting, what is often called a refrain. Yeah, and this refrain really deserves a lot of explanation as well, because this is um, the same refrain after every aspect of body contemplation, every aspect of each of these contemplations, the same refrain comes. Yeah, so it's a very important part of this sutta. Yeah. And uh, it's very in what is interesting about this refrain is that by far the most important part of this refrain is the first one, the first part. Uh, observing the aspect of body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. That is the most important part. Uh, the second part, you observe the body as liable to originate and vanish, is secondary. Uh, and uh, the reason I say that, again, is because of this uh, idea of comparative study, looking at different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta, makes the first part far more likely to be original and going back to early Buddhism. So, so what is that about, watching it externally, internally, and both? What does it really mean? Well, it just means, you know, if we do the 31 parts of the body, you look at your body, and then later on you look at other bodies, and then you universalize all bodies, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah? so it means, it means that sort of thing. The breath, well, you, there it is, uh, again, this kind of idea of universalizing the idea of the breath. But the breath doesn't really belong here, yeah, because it doesn't make much sense to observe the breath externally. So this is also, a, an, a gives you a hint that the breath does not belong here in Satipatthana because it's, it's kind of weird. So what is this external, internal thing? What does it lead to? And uh, uh, again, the few places in the suttas where this is talked about, uh, it always leads to samadhi. As you do Satipatthana internally and externally, it leads you to samadhi. The mind is rightly concentrated, as it says. Uh, this is found in uh, at least one sutta in the Diganikaya, the uh, Janavasava Sutta, Diganikaya 18, something like that. Uh, and uh, you find it in there specifically that this is a samadhi practice. So again, this idea that Satipatthana really is about sat samadhi. The idea of originating and uh, uh, vanishing is not really a part of this. And the last part, uh, mindfulness is just established necessary for 
uh, or yeah, for, for knowledge and mindfulness, they meditate independent, uh, not grasping at anything in the world. Well, this is obviously a more advanced stage of Satipatthana. Not grasping at anything in the world is really when you're often because you have a samadhi already. So I was talking about the samadhi being included in Satipatthana Sutta. Then it is the time comes, you don't grasp at anything in the world. Uh, and then, of course, you can have insight as a consequence. So there's a there's, you can see here how there is a, a development of the practice. Yeah, again, this like everything else, this also goes stage by stage uh, moving forward. Uh, so that is the breath meditation in brief. Yeah, this is very and going super duper fast because uh, we are out of time, but hopefully not so fast that we don't get anything out of it. Uh, so um, this is the first aspect. The second aspect is the four postures. Yeah, And again, as I mentioned before, this is, does not really belong in the Satipatthana Sutta. It is only found in a few sources. But let's read it anyway. Furthermore, when a mendicant is walking, then no, I'm walking. Yeah. When standing, then no, I'm standing. When sitting, then no, I'm sitting. And when lying down, then no, I'm lying down. Whatever posture the body is in, they know it. So this is uh, kind of, again, this idea of being aware in daily life. And uh, it has probably been imported in the sutta from uh, a couple of other suttas that use this, where the context fits much better. Uh, and then you have the same refrain again. So uh, let's go down to situational awareness. Furthermore, a mendicant acts with situational awareness, sati sampajanya, when going out and coming back, when looking ahead and aside, when bending and extending the limbs, when bearing the outer robe, bowl and robes, when eating, drinking, chewing and tasting, when urinating and defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, waking, speaking and keeping silent. So again, we have discussed this past passage in quite a bit of detail before. Uh, and again, it doesn't really belong here. So, so far we have looked at three things that don't belong in the Satipatthana Sutta. So now we come to the real deal, focusing on the repulsive. This is the part that is most likely to be original. So let's have a look at this in a little bit more of detail. Uh, this is the Asuba Bhavana. Yeah, the Asuba. Um, what is it here? Asuba Nupasi, perhaps. Furthermore, a mendicant examined their own body, up from the soles of the feet and down from the tips of the hairs, wrapped in skin, full of many kinds of filth. <laughs> filth, I like that word there, it really kind of brings it home. <laughs> in this body there is head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, Diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, undigested food, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, tears, fat, tears, grease, saliva, snot, synovial fluid, and urine. Doesn't sound all that great, does it? Uh, when you read that, listening, oh yeah, I guess. Uh, do I really want to identify with all of this? Do I really want to keep this body as mine? Am I? Do I want? <laughs> do I want to be these things? Snot and phlegm and bile and feces. 
Jeepers, uh, undigested food. That's pretty disgusting as well, right? Kind of half-digested food. The thing that comes out when you feel really sick and you vomit. Uh, is this me? Don't, I don't think I want to identify with this body anymore. I had enough of this body. I'll identify with the mind instead. Uh, make a beautiful mind. It kind of makes more sense, yeah? In the mind, that's where you have a lot of those beautiful feelings. So this is a great way of kind of... Uh, you can see why this works, yeah? And you really... But one of the important points here, and this is what it starts off with, their own body, yeah? Immang evankaya, which means this very body. So it's a focus on yourself, uh, and this, I think, is a very important point, because when you start with yourself, that is when you overcome this defilement, because our defilement is strongest to our own kandas, our own body. That's where the big one is. And then, by extension, it tends to extend out to other people afterwards. But it's really starting with oneself. This is kind of the important point here. So, how much should we make of this kind of meditation? Should you do this a lot? Why should we even do it at all? And uh, the answer is that, remember when we come to the Anapanasati Sutta, which we won't come to on this retreat, but when you read it, uh, it says there that each of the Satipatthanas is fulfilled just simply by doing Anapanasati, by watching the breath. But then you watch the breath, and the breath somehow doesn't deepen. Yeah, it kind of stops. You come to a plateau. Sometimes it does deepen, it goes all the way. If it goes all the way, you don't have to worry. You don't need to do this kind of exercise at all. If you're already getting good samadhi, forget about this. Because this, the purpose of this kind of meditation is to stop your attachment to the body. So if you don't have attachment to the body, no worries. But what if your meditation plateaus? It comes to a point and it stops. Yeah, And this is a very common experience. I get really nice and peaceful. I just got an email the other day. And this, this, this is from someone in Europe. They're doing kind of a retreat. And they asked me, oh, can do, is it okay if we ask occasional questions? And I foolishly, I said, yes, it's okay. And it always adds, adds to things. But uh, they asked exactly this question. I get really peaceful. I'm watching the breath. And then it kind of peters out. And nothing happens. This is quite a common experience, and many of you probably had that experience as well. So why does that happen? And one of the main reasons it happens is precisely because we're attached to the body and the five senses. So this loosens that attachment. Yeah, If the body is seen as something unattractive, it means you don't hold on to it anymore. And when you don't hold on to it anymore, it allows the meditation to go deeper because you are not... You are not holding on to things that are opposed to meditation. Holding on to external things in the world stops the mind from going within. So this is how this is the idea here. The breath meditation and the asuba bhavana can go hand in hand. So um, filth, the Pali word is literally asuba, which means non-beautiful, and the, that's really the idea. The idea is not to see the body as filthy, so you want to commit suicide and you want to get rid of this body as soon as possible. That's not the point, of course. The point is to neutralize the desire. And then this is, comes out quite nicely in the simile afterwards. It's as if there were a bag with openings at both ends, filled with various kinds of grains, such as fine rice, wheat, mung beans, peas, sesame, and ordinary rice. And someone with good eyesight were to open it and examine the content. Uh, the words that are used here and above, examine, is, uh, is, uh, uh, is um, pachavekati, uh, is the Pali word. And pachavekati does not mean observing, it means 
reflecting on. Yeah. So it means, in other words, imagination. Yeah. So you examine the content. You see what's inside. There's fine rice, wheat, etc., etc. That's how you do it. Just like you're watching or, or even thinking about a bag of various kinds of grains. Yeah? And then you do the body contemplation in this way. Yeah? So it's an act of imagination. It's an act of imagination related to your own body. And it's something you do only really if you find obstacles in Anapanasati. If you have no obstacles, then you go beyond the body anyway. So the body, you already know the body is not yours. You don't need to do any more body contemplation at that point. That's why it is early on in the Satipatthana Sutta. So what if this is too confronting for you? Because for many people it's too confronting. If you live in a relationship or whatever, then it's going to be hard to have this kind of attitude to the body. Yeah, Because living in a relationship often means seeing the the nice side of the body as well. That's kind of the nature of relationships. And if you have one side trying to see the ugliness, the other side trying to see the nice side of the body, seeing the nice is always going to win out, yeah, because it's more pleasant. So you're going to see the beauty in the body, whatever is there. So sometimes you have to have a more neutral method of focusing on the body. And one of those neutral methods is precisely the five four elements. I don't know why I keep saying five elements, but the four elements, which is coming up next. And this is a bit more easier to do, but it, the idea behind this, it depersonalizes the elements a little bit, or the body a little bit. So let's see what this one is. This one is quite important. As I mentioned yesterday, the main, the kind of the core of the Kaya Nupassana is the repulsiveness, and the second most important one is the elements, because it is found in most of the early sources. Furthermore, a mendicant examines their own body, whatever its placement or posture, according to the elements. In this body there is the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Yeah, Earth element is this, water element is anything fluid, like uh, now I'm kind of adding water element to the body. Mm. What element? What element? Mm-hmm. Air element? <sighs> Air element? Fire element? That's kind of the heat in the body. You're feeling warm, yeah? That's basically what it means. And I kind of like these ancient elements. This is how the ancient world always divided up material phenomena in this way. This was seemed to have been done across the world in ancient Greece, in India, and probably other places as well. So this was a kind of natural way, and it's very natural because we can relate to this straight away. Uh, Just as a deft butcher or a butcher's apprentice were to kill a cow and sit down at the crossroads with the meat cut in portions. In the same way we kind of divide the body up. uh, In the same way you observe the body internally, externally, and internally, and externally. So... um, that is very useful, and then you, there is a long contemplation on the four elements found in the uh, a longer sutta on the elephant's footprint, Majjhimanikai 28. And what it tells you in that sutta, and it's a very nice sutta on how to develop this, is just to remember that these internal elements in the body are the same as the elements outside. Yeah, Where does this body come from anyway? It comes from 
your, your parents, it grows up, it comes from food, yeah, they eat, and then your body. So it's basically all the food that somehow turns into this body. So there's a bit of rice here, a bit of vegetables over here, a bit of fruit maybe, <laughs> whatever it is, yeah. And so all of these things add up to this body. So it comes, and where does it the where does food come from? It comes out of the ground. So ultimately, this is just made of the soil. Jeepers, made of soil. Okay, so there is no difference between this and the ground around us. We breathe things in, you breathe things out, you drink things, and this is all interchangeable. And then you die, it goes back again to the, to the, to the earth. So how much, can you, how, how much can you hold on to this as yours when it just belongs to nature? And it will go back to nature again. It's a good point, isn't it? The Buddha must have been right. <laughs> Buddha had a point. Usually the Buddha has a point. But somehow, sometimes it thinks, wow, the Buddha really had a point. Why am I holding on to this? This part of nature. Why do I even, why am I so concerned about this body? It falls apart, comes together. It's kind of really out of control. So this is how you reflect. And then it says in that sutta, you grow, you become disenchanted or you become even averse to the body, no longer interested, so interested in the body, because you understand yeah, that it has to, eventually, it is no more than nature itself around you. Yeah. So this is how you, one way of doing this. Yeah. So let's come to the last one. The last one I would not really recommend anyone to do. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but uh, that's what I wouldn't recommend you, but uh, entirely up to you. So furthermore, suppose a mendicant were to see a corpse discarded in a charnel ground, and it had been dead for one, two, or three days, bloated, livid, and festering. They would compare it with their own body. This body is also of the same nature, the same kind, and cannot go beyond that. This is a really disgusting kind of contemplation. I don't know if you have seen dead bodies, and here bloated, I start to kind of become bigger and bigger, livid, is, is the color, is that right? Bluish, Bluish kind of color, yeah. Festering, festering means like it's starting to decompose and starting to, you know, to all kind of things. So it's this really kind of unpleasant idea. But uh, so this is a very strong kind of meditation. I wouldn't really recommend anyone. I, I, have you seen dead bodies? In the monastery we see dead kangaroos. Yeah, because kangaroos, they pretty much live in our monastery. They love the monks because the monks are kind to them. So there's kangaroos everywhere. Sometimes you have to push them out of the way because they're so friendly. Go away, push. And they come and they get food from you and all these kind of things. And, and sometimes the kangaroos are very cute. Other times they're not very cute at all. And especially when they die, they lose some of their cuteness. So they die. And then you watch them decompose, and it's really, it's incredibly smelly, full of worms and maggots crawling, and the maggots come quickly, and before you know it, there's a pile of maggots, the whole animal, basically. And it's really a kind of... A <laughs> so it's a very powerful thing, and if you see this with a human being, you can imagine it would be far, far worse again. So. Anyway, it gives you an idea that this body that we are so proud of, or we're so attached to, yeah, actually, it's not all that interesting. Yeah, I always like when, when the thirty-one parts of the body—not thirty-two, but thirty-one parts of the body—I always like just to th again, like I said the other day, the idea of just taking the skin off the body. Yeah, 
Beauty is only skin deep. Often we use the idea of beauty is only skin deep in a metaphorical sense, but it's literally true as well. Uh, it's basically what is going on here. Uh. And then you have, it carries on. Yeah? So I'll, just, I'll just read through this because becoming, uh, time is going very fast. Uh. So, furthermore, suppose they were to see a corpse discarded in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, herons, dogs, tigers, leopards, jackals, and many kinds of little creatures, like maggots and things. Uh. They compare it with their own body. This body is also of that same nature, the same kind, and cannot go beyond that. Furthermore, suppose they were to see a corpse discarded in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together by sinews. So all that's left is the skeleton. Kangaroo skeletons, you see those everywhere in the monastery. They're kind of lying around. A skeleton with without flesh but smeared with blood held together by sinews a skeleton rid of flesh and blood held to, held together by sinews bones rid of sinews sinews scattered in every direction here a hand bone here a foot bone here a shin bone here a thigh bone here a hip bone here a rib bone here a backbone there an arm bone here a uh, a neck bone there a jaw bone here a tooth there a skull etc etc White bones, the color of shells, decrepit bones heaped in a pile, bones rotted and crumbled to powder, that compare it with their own body. This body is also of the same nature, the same kind, and cannot go beyond that. And so they meditate, observing an aspect of the body, internally, externally, and both internally, externally. And the meditate mindfulness is established that the body exists uh, to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. Uh, they meditate independent, not grasping at anything in the world. That too is how a mendicant meditates by observing an aspect of the body here. So um, this is uh, how it is described. And again, the uh, the only meditation, the meditation that is most likely to be original is the 31 parts of the body. On top of that comes the mindfulness of breathing, which is the paradigm, number one paradigm, if you like, number one method uh, for doing Satipatthana practice. Uh, and this is kind of very important uh, and I think often not really fully grasped. This is the paradigm for the whole sutta, the whole thing yeah, is really the mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. And I would argue that some of these things, like the 31 parts of the body, is like an addition to that, that helps you uh, with overcoming any problems on the way. Yeah. But it's really the breath meditation that's number one, yeah. which is kind of nice, yeah, because breath meditation is a bit neutral. Yeah. It is not so in your face as some of these other things. Yeah. So I'm talking about them simply to kind of give you the full idea of this. And then you can choose yourself what you, what you think is appropriate for you. But uh, be uh, careful with some of these meditations. They can, they can sometimes lead to problems for people. And uh, whereas mindfulness of breathing is, is usually a kind of a very safe ground. Even that can lead to problems. So even that you have to do with care. But there's less chances of going wrong with that one. Okay, that is the mindfulness of the body, Kayanupasana. And uh, we will finish off the sutta and finish off everything this afternoon. So even if we have to go with express speed towards the end, uh, we will finish it off. I, I 
prom- should I promise? It's dangerous to make promises, but uh, anyway, I I think we should be able to do that. Uh, so once again, have a nice lunch, uh, and we'll see you back again at two o'clock. Uh.